Water woes continue this week in the drought-plagued southwest. Can years of drought and continued climate change make parts of the southwest uninhabitable? We'll ask one drought watcher why the Colorado River is in trouble. And air pollution can be a problem, but did you know that some of the worst air you breathe in your life may be inside your home? Water in the desert and clean air in your home, today on Jet Streaming from Minnesota Public Radio. Happy almost March, everybody. Welcome to Jet Streaming, our weekly show about all things weather and climate. I'm Minnesota Public Radio Chief Meteorologist Paul Hutner, and he is Craig Edwards, my cohort here at NPR and longtime National Weather Service meteorologist. And Craig, the only thing I have to ask you first off today is, does 40 degrees seem adequate after a weekend in Vegas? If you were going to use an adjective, Paul, I would use ad- adequate because uh, going from 70 to 40, if you have sunshine, it's adequate. But uh, I certainly uh, would appreciate a 70-degree reading here in the Twin Cities before we uh, go too much longer uh, through the month of March. Well, and it certainly is coming. That's the good weather news in this part of the country. Weather headlines this week include some tough news for NOAA. A satellite designed to monitor atmospheric CO2 levels went splash Tuesday in the sea near Antarctica. The spacecraft failed to reach orbit after part of it failed to separate, causing the heavier-than-expected spacecraft to fall to Earth. The $273 million satellite was to monitor Earth's CO2 levels and help improve climate change projections. Craig, this would have been some valuable data. I'll tell you what, Paul, you just wonder at what point NOAA and the U.S. science community gets serious about monitoring CO2 if it's that important of an element tied to global warming and climate change. So it just wonders what we have to do next now to get the the new technology in place now that's going to take the place of this failed $273 million satellite. Yeah, they're going to have to re-rack with that. I know they're busy trying to figure out what to do next on that one. That's, that's a shame. Another headline, scientists say glaciers in the Antarctic are melting faster than previously thought and uh, could lead to an unprecedented rise in sea levels. The report uh, released today, actually, by thousands of scientists for the 2007 and 8 International Polar Year concludes that the western part of Antarctica is warming up, and not just the Antarctic Peninsula. Colin Summerhays, he's the executive director of Britain-based Scientific Committee on, uh, Committee on Antarctic Research, says uh, scientists previously believed that most of the warming was occurring on the narrow stretch pointing towards South America. He says uh, data and automated weather stations indicate that the warming we see in the peninsula also extends all the way down to West Antarctica. Interesting a bit of news there. In the southwest, water restrictions may be on the way for drought-stricken California. The third year of drought may mean less water for agriculture and other uses. And even though recent storms have brought Sierra snowpack to about 74% of average, reservoir levels are low and falling after three years of drought. When we see yellow, orange, and red on the U.S. drought monitor map, that's generally not a good thing. And those colors dominate the western U.S., and they have for the better part of the last few years. Water is the lifeblood for the southwest, and the Colorado River is at heart. The Colorado supplies water to major cities in the southwest, including Phoenix, Tucson, Las Vegas, L.A., and San Diego. 
Dr. Ken Dewey watches the Colorado. He is a climate specialist with the University of Nebraska, and he joins us today from Lincoln. Dr. Dewey, welcome to Jet Streaming. I'm pleased to join you. Well, let's start with the big picture. We know the Colorado River is critical to the southwest. What percentage, roughly, of the water supply does the Colorado provide to some of the big cities in the southwest? It provides almost all the water for cities like Las Vegas and some of the other cities nearby, like Phoenix, are not getting water out of the Colorado River. The Colorado River also provides irrigation water, which is necessary in the the southern part of California. Your website highlights the fact that uh, the water level in Lake Mead has dropped. And by the way, your website looks outstanding uh, for anybody that's looking to to kind of bone up on this stuff. And we can we can give that uh, site here in a minute. But it's Lake Mead has dropped over a hundred feet since two thousand. And put that drop in perspective for us. And what are the implications if that decline continues? Well, the implications are very profound. Right now, the city of Las Vegas is about ready to lose their water supply. So they need to invest in what's called a straw. This will be a new uh, pipe that will pull water into the city. It will cost millions of dollars, in fact, almost up to a billion dollars, if the water level continues to fall. If they don't get the money to build this straw, then the city will run out of water. Yeah, this is Craig Edwards, uh, Dr. Dewey, and I was just uh, just returned from Las Vegas, and the construction that uh, continues to go on there, and the ex- the expanding uh, mecca of the Strip, and all that goes on in Vegas. I just wondered, as I put this together in my mind, that at one point maybe the pioneers were traveling through there as a stopover, and perhaps we created created a town that shouldn't be expanding like it is in Las Vegas. What are your thoughts about the continuing expansion in Vegas with what you're t- describing as a critical water problem? Well, fortunately, I'm not a politician. It could be the death of my political career for what I'm about to say. (laughs) But it's a desert, and people don't belong there uh, in the large numbers that they are. Uh, My wife often looks as we fly into there that they have what are called decorative lakes in the suburbs. The water is just there to look at so that when you get up in the morning, you don't have to have that feeling you're in a desert. So there have been calls to limit the growth in that area, but it's not going to happen. The, the economic pressure to continue to build is there. As you saw when I was there a month ago, uh, the large number of condominiums, even looking for people to stay there the whole year, is amazing as you go up and down the Strip. And isn't Vegas actually losing population in the last year or two? This is the first time that Las Vegas is losing a population to any large degree. There is always there are always people coming in, but the net outflow right now exceeds the inflow of people, and it, and it has a ripple effect, which I'll mention in a moment, uh, for the availability of money to build this straw that they need to pull more water out of the reservoir. The people are leaving because the housing industry here, there has crashed for the most part. There are many foreclosed homes. They're not building the developments that they once were. So the people in that industry supplying the materials and doing the actual building have moved on to greener pastures, if you will, a nice desert analogy, I guess, mm-hmm. but they've moved on to another place, uh, other places where they can continue their trade. So there's been an outflow of people, uh, first time that's been observed, as a quick fact, uh, Las Vegas doubled its population in just a 10-year period. Um, I was born back around 1950, a long time ago, but at that time the population in Las Vegas was around 45,000, 50,000, and the metropolitan area now is pushing almost a million and a half people. Yeah, I noticed when I was out there that they did have some water conservation things uh, around the hotel room, and I was thinking that uh, you know, since we're not politicians, we can talk about this in the reality of the desert, that uh, 
do you see a way out of this for Las Vegas and, and how that they're managing water? And do you see something that may become mandatory with regard to the politics of dealing with water issues? Well, there's a whole uh, group of issues surrounding this. What's interesting right now is they need the money to build the straw to continue to pull more water out of there. But they have less new homes being built, which means they don't have the uh, initial setup fees that you have to pay to, uh, to, to get onto the water system. They have more foreclosed homes and people who are not paying uh, into the tax system there. So they actually are having a shortfall of money that way. And secondly, conservation has taken place there. Um, and you can see the xeriscaping going on in many communities. The airport eliminated all of its, veg- uh, all of its normal lawn uh, about five, six years ago. So this means there's also less usage of water, meaning less tax money coming in. So it's kind of funny in a way that um, they're actually the city is becoming less water intensive in their usage, but the population pressure, which will return to this area, is going to cause a problem. Hiding in all of this is the fact even if we had above normal precipitation for years, it would take 20 to 25 years to fill that reservoir back up. And let's talk about the the Colorado River system for a minute. Lake Mead, as we're talking about Lake Powell, they've been dropping. I I think they're holding a little more water in Lake Powell. But how much of the drop in Lake Mead is due to this increase in population versus uh, the decreased precipitation, wintertime precipitation we've seen in the Colorado River watershed? It's tied up in both, and it's also tied up in climate change. As a result of a warming climate in the western states, and it's been year after year, it's been warmer than normal out there, the season of snow cover has decreased, and the amount of snow that remains on the ground well into spring has decreased. We're finding early spring melting, and that water is going into the ground and not running off into the Colorado. So as it warms in that part of the country, there's a reduction in snowpack, and there's a reduction in water that's getting into the Colorado River. And there are also hiding in all of these facts and figures drought cycles that are going on. And the scary thing is in the historical past, some drought cycles have lasted hundreds of years. Uh, the Anasazi Indians living in the cliff dwellings in the southwest were completely gone after a 400-year drought in that area. We don't know if this cycle is a short one or it's going to end in 10 years, 20 years, or for you know, hopefully not 400 years. But we have climate change on top of drought cycles, and then the huge pressure is for the use of water. And it's both for irrigation as well as uh, for domestic use and industrial use. The irrigation for, uh, for agriculture, of course, doesn't change very much from year to year. Mm-hmm. You, you look around and you can see Lake Havasu, for example, maintains its level uh, within a foot every year of where it is because it has to supply water into the irrigation canals. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some of the other cities. Um, you know, I spent nine years in Tucson. I'm very familiar with Phoenix, Arizona, uh, and the Central Arizona Project. Uh, and IPCC author Jonathan Overpack from the University of Arizona made a pretty startling statement last week to the Arizona legislature saying that if the CAP runs dry, uh, no one will want to live in Arizona. Could, could that happen? And what about Los Angeles and San Diego? Well, we'll take a look first at the Phoenix area. Phoenix came very close about four years ago. Uh, The water level in the nearby reservoir was down to about 12%. I do not recall the number at which water cannot reach the city of Phoenix, but it's close to that. It's like 9%, 10%. So they came within a few weeks of actually having no water in the city of Phoenix. 
Now, the problem, of course, is it's called the drought illogical cycle, where we respond to the crisis after the crisis has well down the road. Mm -hmm. So now that water is going back into the reservoirs in Arizona, they're certainly not full again, but it's taken the pressure off of people worrying about it, and their attention is now gone away. So it's a wake-up call that we keep giving, and that's what you heard in that IPCC report is you, you can't continue doing this forever. The growth in Phoenix, Tucson, and Las Vegas is phenomenal, and it's slowed now because of the economic crisis that we're in. But we're poised to recover, and as it recovers, it will again be sought after real estate in a place that should not have unbounded development. And what about L.A. and San Diego? How much water do they get from the Colorado? And, and you know, let's put this into—I don't want to be apocalyptic or alarmist, but— what happens if, if the water runs out in significant measure? Well, Los Angeles and San Diego are dependent upon the water that they're bringing down way from the north up in the San Francisco area um, in canals that come down through the Central Valley and um, through the mountain passes and into the L.A. San Diego area. So they're being fed by the front range of the Sierra Nevada, and they keep talking about trying to access more water from the north. Uh, Las Vegas has talked about uh, tapping into the water up in northern Nevada and bringing that down into the Las Vegas area as well. So both communities are aware that they are at risk, but Los Angeles and San Diego are not sitting on the Colorado, Colorado River. The Colorado River, of course, reaches the Imperial Valley and then heads on down into uh, Mexico. And by the time it reaches Mexico, it's, it's dry. It always is dry as it reaches there, right. always and, in more recent terms. And if I understand, though, they, they do draw some percentage in San Diego and L.A. Yes, they do, because the that water is heading in that direction. And that's part of why, as I mentioned earlier, we keep um, Lake Havasu at full capacity, because that is feeding water into those agricultural uh, communities uh, in Southern California. Well, Dr. Dewey, this is really fascinating. Fascinating stuff. Uh, real quickly, give us your websites. Folks can dig a little deeper into some of the information you've put together. Sure. I have a website called Nebraska Weather Photos, and that's its whole name altogether, nebraskaweatherphotos.org, O-R-G, because, of course, we're a nonprofit organization. And part of Nebraska Weather Photos, it's titled Nebraska Weather Photos and More. I put in various studies of things that I see around the area, including last summer's 10,000-mile trip across the Arctic, as my office sent me to document the impacts of climate change up in the Arctic, and they just recently sent me to the Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, where they've been measuring carbon dioxide, basically the pulse or the temperature of the Earth for the last 50 years. So NebraskaWeatherPhotos.org. Nebraska is not capitalized, all lowercase, just one word, NebraskaWeatherPhotos.org. It's a great site, and I encourage anybody to go and dig a little deep, deeper there. Dr. Ken Dewey from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Thanks for watching the river for us today on Jet Streaming. You're very welcome. Glad to join you. It's in the upper 60s here, so it's got to be heading your direction. Spring's on the way. Bring it on. Well, we issue air quality advisories when pollution builds in our cities, but what about inside your home? Dr. Mark Sneller knows all about that. He keeps track of air quality outside and inside as a pollen and mold specialist, and he joins us today from usually sunny Tucson, Arizona, where it hit 91 this week. Uh, Mark, it's great to talk with you again. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful to speak with you. Okay, so uh, how polluted does the air inside our homes get? 
Well, we're finding out uh, over the last several years that we need to focus our attention on the indoor environment. Apparently, we get uh, in just about every aspect at least 10 times the exposure of bad to bad guys indoors as compared with outdoors. Wow. Uh, you know, and that we're talking about volatile organic compounds, uh, toxic uh, materials that are in fragrances and perfumes. Most of those are, are petrochemicals that that uh, may generate free radicals in the body. It's a, that whole business is a pretty scary business um, in terms of the ingredients that are that are in the perfumes and fragrances. And and where what are the top culprits? What are the sources of those VOCs well, and other things in the home? Again, personal personal care products fragrances are in everything uh, not just in the perfumes and the, in the colognes and such but but they're in uh, uh hairsprays they're in uh you know mouthwash is fragranced uh, toothpaste is fragranced uh, deodorant is fragranced we're probably using 20 or 30 different uh types of fragrance just getting out of the bathroom in the morning and another 100 different uh, chemicals go into our body so so we're doing a lot to ourselves indoors but the good news is that we can clean that up real fast uh, and save money at the same time. And then, they, so you have that gas issue. We call those gases or volatile organic compounds. And then the other major category is particles, and that's that's dust, that's pollen, that's mold. Um, you know that that gets tracked indoors. So I mean, we have normally we'll have more mold outside and pollen outside than we will inside. But still, if you have a lot of um, Plants and vegetation in or near your home that generate these these uh, biological agents, we can track them in on the shoes. So, keeping your shoes, the biggest source of dust in the home is on the shoes, uh, from tracking, and so that that accounts for for virtually all of the dust in our home. It gets ground, you know, as we speak, as as we as we walk and and gets circulated throughout the home that way. So taking off the shoes at the door is, is a real good way to keep down the general dust level inside the home. That's good to know. Uh, this is Craig Edwards. I was coming back on ah. an airplane yesterday, and I was reading in the Sky Mall magazine about something checking about the quality of the the air, or, uh, the aura in your room in the house. And I thought, so is this something mystic, or is there uh, is there actually uh, indoor measuring air quality de- devices that people can buy for their home use, or is it something we just don't want to know about how bad the air quality is because we're going to live there anyway. Well, I mean, I, I love Sky Mall magazine. As a matter of fact, I, <laughs> I, the problem is I tend to buy things out of there too, which I use, but I love that. Uh, there, there are a lot of things that we can say about about that. There are devices. Uh, unfortunately, they're they're not really all that accessible to the uh, to the average person because. Um, First of all, they, they might be fairly expensive to the professionals such as myself. They're they're the kinds of things we use in our everyday work, but it wouldn't mean that much to the average person anyway. The best thing that I could offer in that regard is to say that one room of the home, at least, should be a clean room. So no matter what else is going on in the universe, you got one place you can escape to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no pets, no carpeting. Clothes, the clothing is actually somewhere else. Uh, you know, you might have one book on the nightstand. You've got, you know, it's simple as possible. No fragrance products in the in the master bath. No, you know, all that somewhere else. So, and then maybe a good, uh, good little air purifier in there with some carbon and uh, filtration and a HEPA filter. That place is, you know, that that'll be nice and clean for you. 
and you're, you take your, your bedspread, you throw that in the dryer, on tumble dry, or you take it outside once a week because that accumulates a lot of dust and dirt. So basically what it comes down to, if we're talking about one room, you don't really need to measure what's going on. You just need to keep it clean. So that means basically don't wash your sheets and pillowcases in a fragrance detergent. Don't use fragrance anti-static products in your dryer. So that way, if you're uh, asthmatic uh, or have a tendency toward asthma, you won't be breathing in that stuff at night when you put your face down on it. And then also with with a clean uh, bedspread, uh, then you know you're you get into bed, you fluff up the covers, you beat the pillows, and get everything right. Well, picture a dust cloud going into the air every time you do that, and then at three in the morning when you're hypersensitive and your hormones kick in, you might get a sneezing attack and like that. So, so by by avoidance, you're saving a lot of money and probably saving some doctor bills too. And that's a neat thing about indoor air quality. Not spending money on on objects and items uh, is is really the way to go for better health. How, Mark, how much uh, what you do, and I know you're a consultant. You'll go into a home or a homeowner and kind of assess some of these things and 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 give them some tools to deal with keeping the indoor air cleaner in their home. How how much of an industry is this? Is 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 it growing? Uh, it's a it's a huge industry, and uh, I deal a lot with insurance companies and um, uh, mold remediation companies and and various companies that deal with the home in terms of uh, you know repair and and like that. And uh, I also see the the interest on the part of the public in indoor air quality. And the thing is, what I see in my business is that there's really a big swing now, not just a fad kind of a thing, but a real swing toward indoor air quality because nobody's got the money to go anywhere. Sure. So, you know, so we're going to stay home more. We're going to maybe, uh, you know, watch a few more movies or like that. So we need our house to be ship And the best way to do that is quit spending on things that you don't need. Uh, you know, petroleum distillates in, in furniture polishes and, and, and clean. You know, you clean a house with a half a dozen different objects. All oh, yeah. you need is, is, a, is a lemon. Uh, you can use, uh, and there are books on, on, you know, 100 different uses for baking soda. And, and why don't you give us, you know, for folks that want to dig a little deeper into this uh, as we wrap it up here, what's mm-hmm. a good resource uh, for people to go to? I, I know you've written a book and you have another one on the way and maybe a website just real quickly here. Probably check. You can check actually on on uh, on uh, my website for starters. That's uh, Doctor Dr. Uh, MarkSneller.com, and it'll kind of get you zeroed in on who I am and what I'm about, and and then kind of an old uh, an older version of one of my books, uh, Breath of Fresh Air, that's still available. Uh, there there are all kinds of websites, and in a point of fact, uh, without delineating any others, I would just say that if anybody has the internet, just punch in what you want, and it just comes right up. Yeah. I mean, it, it is so easy anymore that it that it's, you know, you can, you've got the world at your fingertips. You don't even need necessarily a website. I could give you a lot of them, but just punch in what you need, you know, use of lemon for cleaning products or baking soda or vinegar or, uh, you know, 20 mule team borax or, <laughs> you know, yeah. For, you know, pest, 
pest control that's that's non-hazardous. And there there are a lot of great resources. You're absolutely right. It's, it's endless. Well, and I even have to draw the line in terms of putting in the references on for my. I have 30 pages already of references uh, for my in my book, and it's just it's trying to weed them out. There's so much. Well, we will there. we will direct folks in that direction. Yeah. And I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Mark Sneller from Tucson, for joining us today. Uh, Stay away from Sky Mall, and uh, it's <laughs> yeah. dangerous. And thanks for helping us all breathe a little easier oh, that's, today. That's great, and, and thank, uh, thank you, and thanks for your call. It won't be long before we hear that wonderful sound. In fact, in fact, Craig Edwards, there is a hint of thunder with this upcoming snow system that we have, perhaps. There's some talk, some loose talk of potential thunder snow with this system. What do you think? Well, I'm the part of the loose talk, I guess, because I said to <laughs> Kathy Wurz this morning on Morning Edition, I said, I wouldn't rule a lot of clap of thunder. I think we got some convective snow coming with this. It's a matter of whether it be this far north, but it does look like there's going to be some convective bands of very heavy snowfall in a short duration up here in the southern portion of Minnesota uh, overnight on Wednesday night. Well, and, and uh, speaking of uh, precipitation or the lack thereof, th- our website of the week today has to do with uh, something we've been talking about earlier today. It's drought.gov, and it's the National Integrated Drought Information System. Basically, you can get on there and uh, find all kinds of information about drought. You can get the U.S. Drought Monitor, which is a map that uh, shows the entire United States with all the drought uh, indicators on there. And you can click on a region or click on a state. Craig, you and I use this quite a bit, don't we? Yeah, and Paul, you know, I was thinking as we talked to Dr. Dewey that may, he he can be the advocate for what we call Drought Awareness Week. We have all sorts of awareness weeks, but I think we need a Drought Awareness Week <laughs> here. You know, no one needs to sponsor that, so we all get attention toward water conservation. It, it really is something that kind of sneaks under the radar because tornadoes and big storms get all the headlines, but you're right, drought's insidious and it creeps up on you and the effects, as we discussed, are, are pretty significant. Hey, listener feedback this week. We always want to hear your comments here on Jet Streaming. We know that there's a lot of you weather geeks out there that listen to us and download us every week, and we really appreciate that. We'd love to hear from you, too. Here's one today. Uh, says, hello, Jet Streamers. And by the way, this is from uh, John Wetter, our local uh, coordinator of Skywarn operations here in the Chanhassen uh, Weather Service area. Uh, hello, Jetstreamers. I wanted to send a quick note about some opportunities for Jetstream listeners to take advantage of Skywarn's severe weather spotter training. All of the National Weather Service offices for the state have posted their classes now starting the first week of March, and they're listed on the Chanhassen National Weather Service site. Also, there's a workshop coming up. Skywarn workshop is scheduled for March 28, 2009 at the University of St. Thomas, and they'd love to invite all the Jetstreaming listeners to attend. Uh, so you can find out more about that at mnskywarnworkshop.org. Registration for that closes on March 7th. So interesting stuff there from John Wetter, Craig. Yeah, I better get in on that. I went to the workshop last year. It was excellent. This year they're going to talk about the Parkersburg tornado in Iowa last year and also have Dr. Don, or Don Burgess there up there talking about the Doppler radars. Yeah, Don Don is a hit. He's, if you have a chance to get out and see him, you will love listening to him. Another one uh, on our updraft blog from the week, commenting on the pine tree effect effect from Andrew Slade. Uh, He says, thanks for the great reminder about Big Al. We're talking about albedo, of course. I remember a great chart from freshman physical geography showing the energy flow on a sunny winter day from sun to conifer needles to snow to the person. 
I even asked the professor for a copy of this overhead. I spend most of my time in these northern forests and forget about the wide-open white land in the southern part of the state. Hanging out in Ely, it feels like all the factors are stacked in the favor of cold, but those dark conifers really do capture the sun's warmth. Craig, it's interesting to see that effect on a late winter day, isn't it? Yeah, I remember recalling about two weeks ago, I pointed out to Kathy that they went from like 33 below at Ely up to about 14. In the Twin Cities, we went from 5 below to 14. So that's how much the effect of the uh, conifers, conifers had up there in northern Minnesota. So really effect that we all point to this time of year in northern Minnesota. And we're on the verge of it, Craig. Next time we chat, it will be March. Thank you today. Great discussion. Great show today. We're looking for a little bit of March Madness, Paul. We are. And that's a wrap for this final February edition of Jet Streaming. Thanks so much for spending some time with us again today. Please tell two friends about Jet Streaming, will you? For producers P. Ray Rudolph and Jim Bickle and sound engineer Johnny Vince Evans today, I'm Paul Hutner. Keep your ear here to Jet Streaming and keep your weather eye on the sky. Oh